This morning I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we have a lot of work to do in this text, so we're going to get right to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 12 this morning. Love it if you go ahead and turn there. There's some paperback Bibles nearby you. If you don't have one yourself, feel free to grab that and make use of it this morning. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. So we can see we have a lot to cover, and it's a complex argument. So let's begin together. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Thank you. One more thing before we read. The people are in the back are holding up scripture journals for 2 Corinthians. So if you don't have a Bible with you, even if you do and you want to write in it, put your hand up and uh, you can grab one of these scripture journals. And uh, I told them I might remember to mention that. Uh, and I didn't. Uh, so uh, I'd love for you to grab one. Uh, we want to pay attention. We want to pay close attention. The sort of attention that wants to circle things and make notes of things and and make references to other places in the scripture. So we're going to do all of that this morning. So if you want one of those journals, let them know. We'll follow along together. All right, I'll give you a second to find your way. There you go. Find your way uh, in that journal. If you're following along there in your Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I am sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. 
for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this letter particularly. Thank you for preserving it for us and for giving this gospel testimony to the Apostle Paul, inspiring it by your Spirit, we pray that you would apply it to our hearts this morning and give us understanding and uh, give us also this simplicity and, and godly sincerity that is borne witness in this text about your grace. We trust you to work in our midst this morning. It's really our only hope is that you would work by your word. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. In this morning's passage, there's really two parts, okay? There's a theological and a practical argument. The Apostle Paul is the author of the letter that we're reading this morning. He is the one who has planted the church in Corinth. He's the one who began that church. He's the one who preached the gospel when the Corinthians first received and believed. This is important for us to know because 2 Corinthians is written because there are some in the church in Corinth who are beginning to call into question Paul's faithfulness. And that question of Paul's faithfulness is in turn a question of the faithfulness of his message. There's a connection in our passage this morning between Paul's methods among them and the faithfulness of those methods, and his message among them, and the faithfulness of his message. Now, verse 15 tells us what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning. If you look at verse 15, he says, I wanted to come to you at first. And it turns out that he was prevented. He intended to come to Corinth and to come visit them straight away. He even told them that he was going to do so, but something prevented him so that he traveled elsewhere instead. So some seem to have taken Paul's change of plans as an opportunity to question his ministry. It does appear that they're doing this out of a motivation to jockey for a position of leadership among the church so that they might preach another gospel and experience the power that would come from that position. So this morning in our passage, what we see is Paul makes two defenses. He makes a theological defense and he makes a practical defense of his change of plans. Now it's of utmost importance for our understanding of this passage this morning that we observe the order of the defense. What did I say was first? Theological defense, right? And then he moves to the practical defense. He's not just explaining himself. In fact, it takes him a long time to explain himself at all. Instead, he goes right at a theological issue, a theological misunderstanding, particularly about the nature of grace in the church. His chief concern is a theological concern. His concern is that the Corinthians have have misunderstood grace itself, that they have allowed arrogance, power, those, those virtues, values that are prevalent in the culture of 
Corinth, they've allowed the, the power and authority and strength, right, to infect their understanding of the way of the cross. That the way of the cross is to show God's strength not only in the midst of weakness, but specifically through weakness. Do you hear the difference between that? It's not just that weakness can be there while the power of God is on display, but rather that God has specifically chosen in the cross to put the greatness of his resurrection power on display in the midst of the death of God the Son on the cross, that through what the world calls weakness, he might put on display the great power of his grace. Now, verse 12 begins with these words, for our boast is this. Our boast. That's interesting that he's going to make an argument about weakness, and he begins the argument about weakness by saying his boast is this. When we hear the word boast, we immediately think of arrogance and pride, right? It's interesting that he would use this, since pride is clearly a part of the culture in Corinth that Paul is actually confronting. So perhaps one of the things that we should do is we should pay attention to Paul's own teaching on boasting elsewhere in his letters to Corinth. So I said that you might want to make use of your scripture journals or the margins of your Bible. This is an opportunity. Next to that word boast in, in your Bibles, I would recommend writing down 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. In his first letter to the Corinthians that we have recorded for us in scripture, he writes this, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it was written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There is a boast that is to be made, but we are not to boast of ourselves in the presence of the Lord, but rather we are to boast of the greatness of our God, and particularly his work of righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians, interesting, later on in 2 Corinthians, picks up the same language in chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So there is a commendation. There is a boast that can be made in the midst of ministry. But the question is, what is it that the Lord commends? The Lord commends the celebration of his great grace. That's what the Lord commends. He celebrates his great righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that our boast is in the grace of the Lord in our midst. Central to Paul's argument about boasting is that if there is any fruitful labor, the glory and boasting belong to the Lord alone. If there's any work that we have done that bears some beautiful fruit, the Lord has done this. And it's marvelous in our eyes. 
This is why God is most glorified in the midst of what is low and despised. It's when God works through weakness that it becomes obvious that it is not the worker or the circumstances that produced the fruit. Now, notice what I said just a moment ago. Anytime there is a great fruitfulness, it's the work of God. It doesn't matter if the fruitfulness takes place in the midst of strength or weakness, but it becomes more obvious to us that it's the work of God when it's worked in the midst and through weakness. And so we may boast. For our boasting is not in strength. Our boasting is in our weakness. Oh, do you see how I was weak? Do you see how I was simple and sincere among you? God is great, isn't he? Do you see the boast? He takes this directly from Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Another passage to write down in your margin there. This is where Jeremiah teaches this. The prophet, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. So he he layers three arguments Right? Wisdom, might, riches. No. Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Make that known. Hold that high on the mountaintop. I know my God, for he has known me by his grace. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The Lord delights in these things, and the minister of the gospel delights in these things. The boasting that Paul is speaking of is to boast that through the apostles' ministry, the Corinthians have come to know God. We know God is to be their boast. And we know his steadfast love, his righteousness, and his mercy. Specifically, they should boast, and it wasn't through wisdom. Paul didn't come to us with great might or riches like everybody else in our culture tries to do. Our boast is we know Christ in the midst of miracle that he would work through weakness. Paul's ministry among them has always been through simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul makes reference to the testimony of his conscience. Just a little bit later in verse 14, he says that on the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, it's important. We hear the words, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. So now we have some mutual boasting going on, right? Where was it? How did the verse begin? That on the day of the Lord Jesus, that is in reference to the day of judgment. Nobody boasts in the presence of God on the day of judgment except for in his grace. What is the boast that Paul and the Corinthians are like an echo chamber together that they are to make? Their boast is in the grace of God at work in their midst so that on the day of the Lord when he returns, Paul's conscience is clear because that's been his only boast. So he can be in the presence of God himself on the day of judgment and boast in the same way he does in this letter. Here's what he says in verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience 
that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. There could be a period there. He's explained everything that he needs to explain, it would seem. He's told us, I have been among you in simplicity and godly sincerity. But then he goes on to explain what he means by simplicity and godly sincerity. He says, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Simplicity and godly sincerity are such a strong contrast to boasting in wisdom and might and riches. So notice how simplicity and godly sincerity are compared to the ministry by the grace of God. He says that we we worked among you in, in, in simplicity and godly sincerity, not like the world, but by the grace of God. What does it mean? What is the definition of simple, sincere ministry? By the grace of God. That's the definition of simple and sincere ministry. A ministry that is endeavored in such a way that the grace of God is penultimate, is supreme, is magnified. This is our boast that the glory of God is made much of in the midst of the proclamation of the gospel. It's the whole point. The method of ministry is to be congruent with the grace of God to which our ministry bears witness. Method matters. Now, I'm a pastor. I read books on pastoring and how churches are to be organized and strategies for ministry and so on. And one of the things that can creep into those things is theology matters. Yeah, yeah, you know, theology is good. Got to have that down. Method, not so much, as long as you keep the theology right. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The method matters. Simplicity and godly sincerity, they have to be there because they have to be congruent with the message that is proclaimed. Or you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. You're putting on display your great power, your great wisdom, your great riches, while talking about the riches and wisdom of God. There was a, a band in began in the 70s. They really hit their zenith in the 80s, maybe early 90s, and they were called Second Chapter of Acts. Some of you might be familiar with them. I saw some of you go, whoa, that takes me back. All right? Yeah, some of you are like 70s and 80s. I have no idea what you're talking about. But in any event, they had uh, there were three uh, brothers and a brother and two sisters. One of the sisters, Annie Herring, was married to Buck Herring. And in describing the, the way that they went about, the, really the ministry of song, which is what they were about, he explained it this way, that the frame would never outdo the picture. And the picture always has to be Jesus. This is the foolishness of having the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as the content, the portrait, and the gospel's image, and then placing that image in a gaudy, ostentatious frame. It's ridiculous. 
It is gaudy. It is ostentatious. It is presumptuous to frame the gospel in such a way as though we needed the glory of a frame to draw our attention to the glorious image. We're just trying to make much of Jesus. Friends, if you want to make much of Jesus, show Jesus. Talk about his grace. Jesus is much, you see. You don't have to have arrows pointing at Jesus. Neon flashing signs, glitter, wisdom and riches and might. You just have Jesus. The point that the ministry of the gospel is to be conducted in such a way that is obvious that it is the glory of Jesus himself that has caught our attention. This is so important. It's, it's, it's difficult to, to constantly move forward in thinking like this because everything in the culture of Corinth, everything among the people to whom Jeremiah prophesied, and everything in our culture today says we got to jazz it up a little. We got to show a little bit of strength, a little bit of might, a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of riches. We got to we got to really adorn this thing. We've got to do something attractive to make the gospel attractive. And as soon as you do that, you are holding up something else as attractive. And whatever that thing is, it's it's Always idolatry. Always. Friends, I want you to think about this. I want you to... One of the things that was a difficulty, I was talking with Josiah Ravish as he was talking about preaching this passage over at Cross Point downtown this week. And he said, the application is difficult. And I agree. I agree. Because one of the things that is difficult for me is I want to tell you what that looks like. But I think, much like we're going to see Paul does later on in the passage, we need to figure out what that looks like. Only the conscience before our God can know what simplicity and godly sincerity really looks like. I know that here it has looked like one application of that is is having David or, or Brad or someone else be the people who are standing just a little to the side and on the floor level. And I'm only raised this much so I can see the eyes of some of the people in the back. Because the message we want to make sure is clear, but the messenger can step aside or just be high enough so his voice can be heard. So that if there is any grace at work in our midst, it is obviously the grace of God. Paul has dealt with the Corinthians in simplicity, godly sincerity. He's not been lofty or impressive, rich or powerful. All that Paul has offered to the Corinthians has been by the grace of God. And so all the fruit that has been born in them is by the grace of God. Therefore, Paul calls them to remember, to think rightly and so boast in Paul's ministry in their midst, which has been nothing less and nothing more than the grace of God at work in their midst. The grace of God is both the means 
of their boasting and the object of their boast. We know God is their boast. And we know God because God has known us. We know grace. You know how we know grace? By grace. This is our boast. Simplicity and godly sincerity. The means by which the minister of the gospel labors, and so it is our boast. The love we share with those we're investing in must be simple. It must be sincere, clearly motivated by an appreciation of the grace of God. I don't know what that looks like in your ministry. We're discovering together what that looks like in our ministry together. But may your conscience be bound to God that in his presence your boast would be in his grace. Now I said there's a theological argument here. Hopefully you can already see it rising to the front. The theological argument that Paul continues in in our passage is that the promise of God is yes. Now this one gets really, really worked on in a lot of error even in what is supposedly the church. That's easily corrected. The promise is yes. We must ask ourselves, what is his promise? His yes is true for whatever it is that he has actually promised, not whatever we dream up that he has said, whatever we dream up that our hearts desire, whatever we have found attractive that isn't Christ. The promise of God is yes. This is the heart, truly the heartbeat of Paul's theological argument in this passage. Here's what he does. He goes on in the passage to ask this question. Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? What has gone wrong in Corinth? Well, what they've done is they've begun to misunderstand the nature of grace. And so they also continue to misunderstand the nature of Paul's ministry among them. Paul's ministry is so intertwined in his methods with the nature of grace that they misunderstand it because they, Paul's concern is that they have not understood grace itself. Here's the thing. Paul said he's coming to them. He did say it. But Paul didn't go to them. What's going on? What does it mean to make a plan according to the flesh? Well, in what Jesus refers to when he tells us not to make an oath in the Sermon on the Mount, he he says, there he says, to let your yes be yes and your no be no. James picks up on that argument in that little letter of James. And he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. It's a fleshly, worldly thing to make oaths. Here's why. As if when we say yes, it only means yes if we confirm it with an oath. And when we say no, it only means no when we say no, no. Emphatically, one commentator writes this. You su- it's like Paul says, You suspect me of acting insincerely. You you accuse me of vacillation and self-interestedness. You deem me untrustworthy. As a result, I'm like a man who must continually seek to establish the truth of his statements by employing what amounts to an oath. 
When you speak to a liar, a liar is the one who says, yes, yes, no, I really mean it. Because you know how many times they haven't. And Paul says, you want me to have to speak like that? You're calling me a liar when you're calling me to oath. No, Paul says, the ministry of the gospel is with simplicity and sincerity. It is not the sort of thing that must be accompanied by an oath. When Paul preached the gospel among them, there was nothing hidden. There was nothing underhanded. The gospel ministry does not equivocate. It doesn't say one thing and mean another. Paul is going to explain himself in just a minute. But first, he wants to be clear that his word is true. When he has spoken to them, he has spoken to them with simplicity and sincerity. He is not going to resort to oath-taking. He's not going to qualify his every statement saying, this time I mean it. No, Paul had every intention to come to them. It was the intention of his conscience before God. He had desired to comfort them with his presence. But as he will soon explain, given the events that have transpired since he originally told them he was coming, it is for their good that he did not come. Now, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is where Paul's going. I don't, I I ministered among you in simplicity and godly sincerity. What I said, I said with a yes at the end. What I said, I said about the gospel, and I mean it. Look at verse 18 then. This is where he's going. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy, and I here he's calling witnesses, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. There are some in Corinth who seem to suggest that Paul's teaching of the gospel is just as fickle as his promises to come to them. See, he's weak. He was weak when he was with us. He wasn't eloquent. He wasn't rich. In fact, he worked as a tent maker like he was some sort of slave. Paul's weak, and he suffered the whole time he's gone, which clearly means his gospel isn't true, or else God would give him better things than suffering. And here he planned to come to us, and now he doesn't. Paul's weak, and his gospel is weak. And you can see why Paul is so upset. Paul didn't promise to come to them. He didn't promise. He didn't say, yes, yes, on oath, I come to you. But he isn't going to mince words between, yes, I'm coming, and yes, I promise to come on oath. Instead, he's saying, yes, I said I was coming, and I did not come. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely certain against every circumstance and every condition. You see, Paul's statement, his sincere, simple statement, I am coming to you, is conditioned. If I'm still alive, if I can manage the transportation, if there's finances available, if it turns out to be the right thing at the particular moment when it's time for us to go. I think of this The best illustration I could think of this uh, during the course of the week was when my kids ask me something. Because I know, I see some of the parents just smiling. You know where I'm going with this. I know that when my kids ask me, can we go 
to the park this afternoon so we can hang out and have a picnic. If I say yes, they're going to beat me over the head with that. Because my, my yes is conditioned on things like, unless it rains. I know what it's like to say yes to something, and then the rain comes and they complain to me. And I'm like, I didn't make it rain. <laughs> I meant it. And so I know what it is that when someone asks me something to feel like I have to condition it. Like, yes, I absolutely promise, unless this thing is true, and this thing is true, and this this circumstance goes like this, and if I'm still alive at the time, then yes, I'll... Do you know what I mean? To have to qualify your every statement, because our statements are circumstantially conditioned. It's the same argument that James makes about oath-taking. By the will of God, we'll go to this setting or that. But what... Paul is establishing is that in Christ, the promise of the gospel, every condition has been met. The gospel has conditions. Sin must be dealt with. Forgiveness is not just an automatic willy-nilly decision of God that he keeps to. It is founded upon his righteousness that sin And sinners must be judged. And Jesus comes and takes the place of sinners. The one who is perfectly righteous meets that condition. Takes the place of sinners. He meets that condition. Dies in the place of the judgment that was due to sinners. He fulfills that condition. And he doesn't stay dead, but rather rises in victory by the power of Christ himself. And he meets that condition. And then he goes to the Father to serve as mediator between God and man. He meets that condition. And then he takes his seat on the throne of heaven and will return for his people. He meets that condition. You see, even salvation is conditional. But Christ has met every condition. That's why the simple statement of grace is both simple and sincere, a simple yes in Christ. Every condition has already been met. That is what is meant by, for all the promises of God, find their yes in Christ. He meets every condition. Friends, that is supposed to lift up theirs and our worship and confidence. It's why he speaks of the plans of God as in verse 18, as surely as God is faithful. We know he's been faithful because of Christ. This is what Paul is speaking of. What then is the word of the gospel ministers? Well, it's amen. That's our word. Literally, surely, truly. We preach that gospel and the whole of the congregation responds, amen. Truly, surely, that's true in Christ. We believe. Paul then affirms his and the Corinthians' mutual hope in Christ. God has established both Paul and the Corinthians. God has anointed them, he says. He's sealed them. He's given them his spirit so that we might be sure, guaranteed in our faith in Christ's gospel work and 
word. Christ has met every condition and he's applied that the beauty of grace and salvation to the hearts of all who believe. Summarize, Paul changed his plans. It's true. But the truth of the gospel, the message that he has preached among them, hasn't changed a bit. Don't equate Paul's lack of coming to Corinth with whether or not the gospel Paul preached is absolutely against every condition true. For the gospel rests not on the word or will of any man, but on the faithfulness of God himself in Christ. This is Paul's theological argument. His main concern is not to defend himself, not to defend his decision. He's just a dude. Except for he's a guy who has brought the message of the gospel to a people. And so his defense is of that gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel that he preached. That's his theological argument, our confidence in the grace of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to a more practical argument. You can see it begins in verse 23. We'll spend just a moment on this. The practical argument, verse 23, but I call God to witness against me. What he's saying is my conscience is clear. In the presence of God, who is the only one who can truly judge our consciences, and that doesn't mean we get off the hook. It means we're on the hook, you see. He's saying I'm on the hook, and it's before God. My conscience is clear. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. It was to spare you. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul had to deal harshly with the Corinthians on a number of occasions. We have a number of records of this harsh relationship. When we did our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, we called that sermon series a beautiful mess. That's because the situation in Corinth, their behavior, their sin, their immaturity, is truly and utterly a mess. Many of the situations Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians are shocking to read. Like, did he really say that? Was that really going on in Corinth? Paul also speaks of a severe letter. Here he speaks of a painful visit that he had with the Corinthians. This has been a difficult relationship between church planter and church. Not every interaction Paul had with this church has been pleasant. But Paul had received some indication from Titus when Titus came and brought the report about Corinth to him that there has been some measure of repentance among the people in Corinth. There has been some repentance. There are some signs of maturity that there appears to be much work yet to be done, but the work has begun in them. Which tells Paul what? If we're following the reasoning, there has been some fruit of repentance among them. So Paul's like, yeah, yeah, what I did was working. What does Paul think? No, he doesn't think that. He doesn't think, wow, if I'm harsh with them again, I could get that even more repentance out of them. What's he thinking? If there is any fruitfulness in the midst of our ministry, it is by the grace of God. You know what he thinks? The grace of God is at work among the people of Corinth, and I'm not even there. By the grace of God. Paul explains that he's afraid that if he comes too quickly, 
he'll have to rebuke them again. So instead, he delays his visit so that they might have opportunity to correct themselves, that the Spirit of God would work among them. The word that they had received might be remembered among them, even as Paul is sending this letter to remind them of the word. He doesn't leave them completely absent. This approach is commendable for many reasons. Paul sees that it is possible for a leader to rebuke with too heavy of a hand. That's a good thing for a minister of the gospel to remember. It is possible for us to rebuke with too heavy of a hand. And if Paul came to them face to face, he realizes it would be too harsh. Paul also sees that the gospel that he has left with them and that he's reminded them of in his letters is sufficient for their correction and faithfulness. That is transformatively important for any one of us who is investing in in disciple-making labor. That the gospel that we have made known and the work of the Spirit in the midst of the application of that gospel to any human heart is sufficient for transformation. I tend to think that it's a great start if I could just do this. If I could just think of how to say it like that. Man, why didn't I think of saying that when I was with them? You know what I'm talking about. But Paul seems to believe that the gospel is already at work among them, that it is sufficient for their correction and faithfulness. And he says this, he doesn't want to lord it over their faith. That is, Paul cannot force their maturity by means of power and control or guilt or shame. There is every indication in this letter that that is what he later on in the, in the letter calls super apostles. What some, some powerful people who have sort of power and influence as the culture defines it, strength in the world, not weakness before the gospel of God, right? It seems that they are trying to establish themselves and their teaching by means of power and control, and it's working. Rather, he is calling them to wait upon the Spirit of the Lord, to continue in the instruction of the gospel, to bring, that the Spirit would bring them to maturity and that they would stand firm in their faith. Again, the testimony, not only the message, but the method of the minister of the gospel must be that it is the grace of God that works in us. It is not power or authority of the minister himself, but the grace of God. I I can tell you, you can probably see this already. I can empathize with Paul here. I know many of you can as well. There are many times that I could join Paul with his words in verse four. Look at it. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The tears and the anguish of heart is he would love to make something happen but he rests upon the grace of God to work. There are many Saturday nights that Sandy asks me a question. She says, so tell me about the message tomorrow. What's, what's going on? What are you preaching? Or she sees me there brooding, and she says, go ahead and let it out, you know? And what happens for the next 15 minutes or so is a long and spirited complaint, mildly informed by the scripture. I tell her what I'd like to say. 
Let me tell you, well, let me tell you what this passage means for Cross Point Coast. And I'll, I'll just, just did it this last week. And I just unpack it all. Everything that you're supposed to do. And I realize I'm kind of bundled up in that mess too. And I'm going to make it happen this week. I'm going to say it more clearly. And I'm going to say it more forcefully. I'm going to be louder. I'm going to make a complex argument that just absolutely convinces you. This time, here's what Sandy and I have come to call that. We call that my angry preach. And I get it out of the way on Saturdays. I'm glad I get it out of the way. You're glad I get it out of the way. That's an angry preach, and that's no way to preach. Here's what's wrong with an angry sermon. It presumes that by my anger or by my forcefulness of will, I can cause you to walk in the light of the word that is preached. But that isn't the gospel word at all. The word is that God is faithful. The word is that both salvation and maturity are by the grace of God. So how can it be by the anger of the minister of the gospel? Therefore, our preaching must be with simplicity and godly sincerity. We work, as verse 24 says, we work for your Joy. That is the business of disciple makers, to work for your joy. This is essential for both you and I to remember. It's the role of the minister of the gospel to remind the church of the faithfulness of God in the gospel. It's the role of the congregation then, or anyone who is receiving the ministry of the word, all the saints, to believe to work out that faith by the grace of God that we have believed. Now, right now, you might be thinking, man, this is really great to watch you preach to yourself. (laughs) This is great. I'm just going to sit back. I'm not even taking notes. I'm going to remind you a couple things you said, right? Except for this. We believe that in the name of Jesus this morning, we are ministers of the God. We are ministers of the gospel. We have been made, we have been called to make disciples. We are partners together in the ministry of reconciliation. Paul himself says, as you are engaged in gospel ministry, it becomes easy to despair. You know what it is to preach the gospel to someone and to see little hints of, of grace, but you're not satisfied. The maturity is too slow. I can't help but again think of my own children, right? Some of you who have children, you know what that's like, but others of you who have parents and you've invested in them and you labor there. You know what it's like to be a minister of the gospel to friends and want to, to cause maturity to grow up there. You can't control your circumstances, though, can you? And you can't control your children, you can't control your friends, and you can't control your family. In that despair, you can begin to exercise power and control. But that's not the gospel. You know what it turns out that the minister of the gospel needs? What does the minister of the gospel need? The gospel The minister of the gospel needs the grace of God 
you and I, applied to our hearts to transform not only our message, but our method. In that despair, our ministry is the grace of God, especially in the ministry of homes, whether those homes be a ministry to family members or friends who come into them. The ministry of the gospel is a simple statement that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he rose so that we might have eternal life in him. And whatever word in that statement of the gospel connects with another human heart, we labor there. And we trust in him. May that be our message, and may that be the means of our proclamation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for simplicity. We thank you for godly sincerity. We, we thank you for the weakness of Paul recorded for us in here. He is, he's no hero, but that's kind of the point. He's simple and sincere. And so, Lord, we thank you even more, although infinitely more, for the weakness of the Christ. If anyone has not only the authority, but the actual power to do whatever he wants, to, to rule his kingdom with an iron fist, made himself weak. Lord, may that transform our message and our Methods And Lord, we pray that we would see evidences of grace and that those evidences would drive us not to ask, how did we do that? But cause us to rejoice that you have done this and that it would cause us not to diagrams and charts, but it would rather drive us to worship, song, and increased prayer and dependence upon our God. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for your grace at work among us. We, we have a lot to be thankful for this morning because your grace is at work in the midst of your people by means of your word applied by your spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.